I vividly remember the, the joy that I experienced perso- personally when I first learned that my wife was pregnant. I leaned over during the worship service and I asked Jereen, How old is Abby again? And she says, 22. And I said to her, Are you sure? It's been almost 23 years since we had our first child. Well, looking back on those days, we we planned and we anticipated the great event when our first child would be born. We we talked about names, and Abby was actually supposed to be called Sarah. But I got voted out on that one, so you know her as Abby now. It should have been Sarah Steele, but it's Abby Steele. And... uh, We went to birthing classes, we learned how to breathe, we learned all the things that we needed to do to prepare for this monumental event. But no one could have explained the joy to both my wife and me at the joy that we would discover the same exact thing when our son Nathan was born. I want you to think about the the joy of, of having children Because the scene is similar for a Christian who is anticipating spending all eternity in heaven. It is difficult to to comprehend the reality of heaven until we're actually there. But I want to to do our best to to guide us these last two weeks on really a, a short excursion on what it will be like to experience the reality of heaven. And that is the title of the message this morning, the reality of heaven. This morning I want you to see two main headings that will help us to discover the reality of heaven. Next week we will continue that discussion and Lord willing come to the conclusion of this brief series. And I should say it now, and I will likely say it again, that even though we've come to the end of our discussion, we have barely touched the tip of the iceberg when we begin to unpack the reality of heaven. The first thing I want you to see, the first main heading, is that heaven will be brimming with hope. Heaven will be brimming with hope. I want to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. And we will see... Very vividly here in the book of Philippians, this first broad principle that heaven, our heavenly home, will in fact be brimming with hope. In Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul the Apostle says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is what we learn. We learn that our citizenship is indeed in heaven. I think several weeks ago I mentioned one of my favorite tennis players. The name of this particular player is, is I was just struck and, 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 and blown away by, by the prospect of playing tennis every day when I was a high school student and a college student. This man's name was Yvonne Lendl. He was very popular in the 80s and has since kind of faded into obscurity. But Yvonne Lendl 
lived many years in America, even though his citizenship was at the time in what we knew in the 80s as Czechoslovakia. We refer to that now as the Czech Republic. And the moment he transferred his citizenship in 1992 from his Czech homeland to America, Ivan Lendl never looked back. His love for America grew and grew and grew. And as Christ followers, we too need to live in light of reality. Our citizenship is in heaven. We recognize that now. But as Lendl learned, once he became a citizen, that, that, that love for his new country continued to grow and escalate. And the truth will be fully realized for you and I when we one day enter our heavenly rest. And so our citizenship will be in heaven. There's a second thing I want you to see that is found in the book of 1 Peter. And we will come back to Philippians 3 in a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, reading in verse 3. And for many, many years I have been um, so encouraged by 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3 reads as follows. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are not only citizens of a new country, we are born again, Peter writes, into a living hope. And I want you to see this morning that this living hope is both a present reality and it is also a future reality. It's a present reality, and it is also a future reality. In Romans 6, Paul says it like this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, this living reality is both a present reality and a future reality. It is one theologian said, already, not yet. And there are many things in the Christian life that are already and not yet. You think about the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is where? It's within you. Yet we know very clearly that the kingdom of God has not come in all its fullness. And so the kingdom of God is already not yet. We presently live under grace and we are also free from the tyranny of sin. We presently experience the the forgiveness of sin. We presently experience the peace of God. Therefore, if you have been justified by faith, you have what? Peace with the living God. And so our future hope is waiting in heaven and will be expressed in our glorious reign with him. So says the book of Titus chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. And so the living hope is a result, you see. It's a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything is summed up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This morning, as I looked at my Twitter feed, I I noticed a, a brief comment from Tim Keller. 
referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And his, his, tweet, his feed basically said this, that because Jesus has risen from the grave, we must listen to him. There were wise words from Dr. Keller. And then I'd love to read the comments under a thought-provoking tweet like that. Instead of, Lord bless you, thank you for your great insight, we're praying for you, the unbelieving world came unglued. They came unleashed. And they criticized Tim Keller for believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, our living hope is a result. It is directly linked to Christ's resurrection from the dead. Move forward in verses 4 and 5. Peter continues his discussion. He says, We have been born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here we see this. Our inheritance is waiting in heaven. It's waiting in heaven. Our inheritance, simply put, is our future with God. Let me read a short line from the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 12, Paul says it like this. He says that we are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. And then he continues. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. One theologian describes the inheritance that we enjoy because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in its deepest theological sense, the believer's inheritance is something which comes from God himself. In the Old Testament, it has a physical dimension in the shape of the promised land. And we're very familiar with that. In the New Testament, however, he says it is the spiritual inheritance which comes through the kingdom of God and the promises of eternal life. Like the covenant, it expresses a fundamental relationship between God and man. It depicts God's desire to give his people a secure abode. Now, I want to focus for a few minutes on that secure abode or the secure inheritance, if you will. There has been an ongoing debate that, that spreads throughout church history. And the debate, goes, the, the debate goes something like this. Are we eternally secure? You're very familiar with this debate. Can a believer, can a Christ follower lose his or her salvation? If I am honest with you, one of the biggest struggles I had as a Christian child was thinking about whether or not I would lose my salvation. Now, I want to try an experiment this morning. How many of you, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands, have ever struggled, whether it was when you were a child or even now, have struggled with, can I lose my salvation? Would you raise your hand? Would you look around? I would say the vast majority of the congregation has has struggled with this idea of what theologians refer to as the perseverance of the saints. 
Well, this morning, in just a few minutes, I want to look at the qualities of the inheritance. Now, there are many arguments for the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. But I want you to see in two small verses, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that there are several qualities that you possess in your inheritance. And I think if you have ever struggled with it, and most of you have, that you can, you can put that struggle to rest. That today will be the day when you can say, I realize that since I'm in Christ, my inheritance is secure. And know this, this is, as I've said before, only one of the many, many arguments, both biblical, theological, and exegetical. Look first in verse 4. Peter says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable. Now, for me, this is the end of the argument. If the inheritance is, if the inheritance is imperishable, a word that means uncorrupted, not liable to corruption or decay, that means what? That means I can never lose the inheritance. Man, I hope from time to time you buy your wife flowers. Most women I have discovered... Enjoy flowers. My wife enjoys flowers. But one thing I've learned over the years is that when I buy my wife flowers, they're beautiful for three, four, maybe five days. And then what happens, men? They go to the garbage can. They die. They, they get corrupted. They perish. They spoil. They fade. Well, Peter says, when it comes to your inheritance, don't think about roses. Don't think about tulips. Don't think about anything that can perish, spoil, or fade because your inheritance is literally imperishable. It is an uncorruptible inheritance. It is not liable to corruption or decay. Look at the second quality of the inheritance. He says that your inheritance is undefiled. That comes from a Greek word that means unsoiled. Your inheritance is literally unsoiled. Number three, he says it will not fade away. This is a word that means unfading flowers as they, as they bloom into the next world. It would be like Peter refers to this, this flower that is perpetually blooming. It never fades away. That is a portrait of your inheritance. And then he says your inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. The word means to, to carefully guard. It means to carefully guard it's a word that is written in the present tense that means that uh, there's something that happened in the past with continuing results to the future. This is how secure your inheritance is in Christ. And if that isn't enough, there's a, a final word here that Peter uses. He says it's protected. That is, your inheritance is protected by the power of God. If those first several words didn't do it for you, this should do it for you. That your inheritance is protected by the power of God. This is a phrase that means to keep watch. It's a military word that means to lock up as a prisoner. If you've ever been to Fort Lewis or a military base, you know that you have to go through a series of checkpoints to get in. And you have, you have armed guards in full uniform who ask a series of questions, especially post 9-11. The questions increased, I, I discovered. And you know that if... If you don't have access, if you don't have the right credentials, you're not going to get into that military base. Recognize this. Your inheritance is protected by the very power of God. Now, what do you know about someone who says that you can lose your salvation? 
What is it that they're suggesting? They're suggesting that God's power will fail. They're suggesting that in some way, shape, or form, your inheritance is corruptible. And at the end of the end of the day, they're suggesting that the word of God is not true. Now, I believe personally, it's difficult to comprehend something that does not perish, spoil or fade. Why? Most of us are aware of the the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics or entropy in a more popular vein tells us that everything deteriorates. Everything deteriorates. Everything, everything goes bad. And the exception to the second law of thermodynamics is our inheritance in Christ. It never perishes. It never spoils. It never fades. It is reserved in heaven. It has your name on it. It is guarded and protected by the very power of God. Our inheritance is waiting for, for us in heaven. There's another thing that we need to see, and it's an encouraging uh, piece of information. That is that the obliteration of pain, sin, sickness, and death will be a part of the reality that is yours and mine in heaven. Look with me at Isaiah 35.10, and it's on the screen there before you. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow. And their sighing shall flee away. We're talking about the the utter obliteration of pain, sin, sickness, and death. So last night I wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I feel that, you know, that little tickle in your throat. And you say, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes. And you take your cold medicine and you wake up and think you're going to be better. And you end up with a pastor that sounds like Kermit the Frog, right? Amen to that. Aren't you excited about the obliteration of pain, sin, sickness, and death? One day Jesus Christ will make all things new as the book of Revelation teaches. There's a final thing I want you to see, and this is really the capstone of all of these, the great hope that we have in Christ, and that is the hope of unhindered fellowship. Look with me at the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. The hope of unhindered fellowship. And when I refer to unhindered fellowship, I want to read for you in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and you get an idea of what I'm referring to as you listen to John unpack this amazing reality. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, get ready, we shall see we we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the reality. We will see God face to face. And not only will we see God face to face and have unhindered access and fellowship to this living God, we will also see the loved ones who have gone before us. Every one of God's elect, we will have fellowship with all of God's elect who have gone ahead of us. There's one more thing I want you to see, and that is the hope of a glorified body. 
the hope of a glorified body. It is J.P. Moreland who said, when believers get to heaven, Christ will conform them to himself and he will give them his glory. They shall in their measure be made like to him. Their bodies, notice, after the resurrection shall be conformed to his glorious body. So I promised that we would go back to Philippians. If you would look once again at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. Several things about the glorified body, the hope of a glorified body. By the way, I should tell you that generally when I study about the glorified body, I don't know why it is, but I I heard a message once and I, I listened to some teaching from Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. And Johnny Erickson Tata, as you might imagine, is really excited about glorification. Why is that? She's been a paraplegic her whole adult life. And she loves the doctrine of glorification. Do you not love the doctrine of glorification? It's a wonderful doctrine. Notice as we unpack it. Number one, our body will become like Christ's Body. Look at Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. We've seen that. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will revel in this, transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Our body will become like Christ's Glorified body. Number two, our body shall, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, be raised imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power. What I like to do when I read those verses is to contrast our bodies now, which are perishable, which are filled with weakness, which are natural. Notice what Paul says our bodies shall be raised imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power. It gets better. Number three, our glorified bodies shall grow in holiness, happiness, and knowledge. Now, if you have a bottle of aspirin this morning, this might be the time to pop the top and take a few, right? Because this is, is, is very challenging to get through our minds. You tend to think conventional wisdom would suggest when you go to heaven, you got it all figured out. You know God, person, you, you know God uh, perfectly. Your knowledge is perfect and everything's great. What we learn here is that our glorified bodies will grow, and I might add, to all eternity in holiness, grow, 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 in happiness and also knowledge. This is an amazing... Wow. Edith, I I remember when when I began to wrestle with this because... As I said, conventional wisdom suggests when you go to heaven, you just have it all. Everything's perfect, right? Holiness, happiness, knowledge. But what I've since learned is that those things will grow unto all eternity. Why? Because even in eternity future, we will be finite. We will be finite. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. He says, therefore, glorified saints will increase to eternity. And if their knowledge, doubtless their holiness, for they increase in the knowledge of God and the works of God, the more they will see of his excellency, the more they will love him, the more they will love God, the more delight and happiness they will have in him. 
And if you have a hard time grasping that, I want to talk to the men for a second. Do you remember when your wife walked down the aisle? I'll never forget it. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I loved my wife. Doreen and I have been married almost 27. Is it 27 or 26? Now I'm in big trouble. I should have said almost 30 years. We've been married almost 30 years. If you would have told me back in 1991, Dave, 30 years into it, you're going to love Doreen even more. I would have thought, no, it doesn't get any better than right now. Do you know, and all the men can understand this, you can relate to this, you love your bride more and more and more. It just keeps growing, right? And I know some of you have been married over 50 years and you would give testimony to the fact that now you love your spouse even more. Is that possible? Is it possible? Thank you. You grow, you grow in love with your spouse more and more and more. And that is just a portrait of what the saints in heaven will be like. We will grow in our love to God. We will grow in our knowledge of God. And we will grow in our holiness to all eternity. Number four. Our glorified body, then, shall be the culmination of God's redemptive program. Namely, the salvation of the body and the soul. Would you turn over to Romans chapter 8, please? Romans chapter 8, and look with me, beginning in verse 29. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29. This is an unbelievable section of Scripture. I can't wait to look at it in greater detail when we study the the book of Romans. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew... Let me say just one thing about foreknowledge. When When you look at the word foreknow in Scripture, we would all agree that foreknow means that God has perfect knowledge of all future events. I think there would be... Uh, total uniformity around the congregation on that. But I want you to go beyond mere foreknowledge. Because when the scriptures uses that term foreknowledge, it's referring to for loving. For loving. And so notice again, for those whom he foreknew or for loved. And so he saw you. He saw you. Jordan and Kenna, in eternity past, God saw you. He didn't just know about you, he foreloved you. Ken and Tammy, in eternity past, God didn't know about you, he loved you. And imagine being loved by this everlasting God. This is, I like to say, a white hot love. He set his affection on you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Theologians refer to this section of scripture as the golden chain of salvation. Those whom God foreloves in eternity past, what does he do? He predestines them. Those whom he predestines, he calls. That is, he calls them effectually. Those whom he calls effectually, he justifies. They now enjoy right standing with God. And every person who is justified, 
If you are justified this morning, you can, you can bank on this. You will one day be glorified. And this is the, the culmination of God's amazing and glorious redemptive program. Namely, the salvation of not just the soul. I think the evangelical church has been guilty over the years of focusing on you need to be, your soul needs to be saved. You see what I'm saying? It's not only your soul, it's your body as well. This is the culmination of God's redemptive program. Robert Raymond, a man who has gone on to be with the Lord, says, At this point, Christians will enter, enter upon their glorified state. The goal toward which the triune Godhead has been relentlessly driving. What has he been relentlessly driving at? It's the, the salvation of your soul and body. The triune Godhead has been relentlessly driving from the moment of creation. And that ultimate end, which is the first of the decrees and the eternal plan of salvation. You see, it's, it's all come to this, the, the final salvation of your soul and your body. And so heaven will be filled with hope. There's a second heading that I promised, and that is that heaven will offer bountiful rewards. It will offer bountiful rewards. One writer says that although we cannot be positive concerning the nature of these rewards, it is probably best to conclude that crowns have something to do with further spiritual development, learning, and service to the Lord. And we've seen that this morning. And so we will put it like this. We shall receive a crown. We shall receive a crown. And there is some amount of of controversy over this. And I have been in discussions with individuals who say they're not interested in rewards. Can I just go on record? And I I hope someone will stand with me on this. I'm shooting for some rewards. Is anyone with me? I think, see, this is a good thing. Don't feel bad about desiring rewards. We We are to eagerly look in that direction. For the scripture says, we shall receive a crown. Receiving the crown is integral, you see, to glorification because at the point of glorification, the righteousness of Christ is perfected in us. Notice several comments about this crown. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And as you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you have to, you have to know that Paul the Apostle was somewhat of a sports fan. And if he was not a sports fan, he was at least very in tune to the Olympic culture. Because here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 and following. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Of course we know that. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive what? A perishable wreath. I suspect that some of you played sports when you were children and you got trophies and plaques and medals. And my suspicion is most of you have not stored those awards in some prominent place like Michael Jordan but they're actually in a cardboard box in your garage. How many of you have those rewards? They're just, they're just set aside, right? They are perishable. Paul refers to that as a perishable wreath. But we, that is God's people, an imperishable, 
a, a crown that is imperishable. And that lines up with what we learned in 1 Peter chapter 1. Not only is our inheritance imperishable, but our crown likewise is imperishable. The crown, you see, will be incorruptible. And the same word is used to describe the incorruptible crown as the word that describes our imperishable inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Second, look with me at the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I want you to see with me for a moment in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, something very, very important. Paul now is at the end of his ministry. I'm reading a new book on the life of the Apostle Paul right now. I'm about halfway through it, and it is absolutely breathtaking. It is stunning to to get the, the cultural context of what's happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. But in 2 Timothy 4, he's at the end of his life. He knows that uh, the end is drawing near. And here's what he says in verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Oh, men and women of God, if you could only say that before you breathe your last. Like the Apostle Paul did. Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, do you see it? The crown of righteousness. Do you think the Apostle Paul was eagerly pursuing the crown? You better believe it. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his coming. You see, the crown, simply put, is given to those who anxiously await the appearing of Christ. There's a, a, an important question I pose now is, are you looking forward to that day? Are you eagerly anticipating the return of Christ? Do you eagerly anticipate the day when you will receive the crown of righteousness? Number three, we look over at the book of James. The book of James, chapter 1. And we get a little clue here as to what that crown will involve in James chapter 1, verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You see, the crown is given to those who who love Jesus. The crown is given to the one who, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4, to the one who finishes the race. I'll put it in these terms. The crown is given to those who persevere. So when you think about the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, think of it like this. Think of it as the preservation of the saints. Because ultimately it is the Lord Jesus who preserves his people unto all eternity. Then go back with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. We've seen that the crown is incorruptible. It's a crown of righteousness. It's a crown of life. But finally, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter tells us it's a crown of glory. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, that is Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory. Now, 
We don't have time to develop this this morning, but I want you to see a a second major thing, and that is that there will be be degrees of rewards. There will be degrees of rewards. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. And I would suggest to you, if you are interested, since we're running out of of time this morning, if you would desire further study on the degrees of rewards, it's not something that's been taught explicitly in the church, I've found, is I would turn your attention to anything that Randy Alcorn has written on rewards. And also, if you have a copy of Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, his treatment on rewards is absolutely stunning. But for now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Wayne Grudem adds that we must guard against misunderstanding here. Even though there will be degrees of reward in heaven, listen, the joy of each person will be full and complete for all eternity. In actuality, however, our true happiness consists in delighting in God and rejoicing in the status and recognition that He has given us. And I think the best way I have ever heard of understanding the degrees of rewards was explained by my late uncle, Paul, who went to be with the Lord back in 1991. Here's the way he explains it. As a pastor who... From time to time would, would struggle with finances. He and his family, his, his wife and his son, decided that they're going to save some money over the course of the year and make a trip to Disneyland. It's one of my uncle's all-time favorite things, to go to Disneyland. I'd agree with that. And so they saved and saved and saved and saved. And they finally saved up enough money and they were going to take the family to Disneyland, the three of them. And so they, they drove down to Disneyland from San Jose found a place in Anaheim, and they went to Disneyland, and lo and behold, it was closed. And the sign on Disneyland said that they wouldn't open for three days. I don't know if it's ever happened before or it's ever happened since, but they closed the doors. And so my uncle and my aunt and my cousin, they went to the motel where they set up shop and waited for three days. Well, guess what? All the money that they had saved had to be expended on expenses now at the, at the motel and food and taking care of themselves for the next three days. And on the third day, they went back to Disneyland. It was opened up. And these are the days, most of you don't remember this. I actually do, believe it or not. When you don't pay one fee and get to ride all the rides, you paid a, a base fee. And then once you got in the park, you had to pay for individual rides. Does anyone remember that? Years and years ago, maybe the late 60s, mid-70s, it was like that. And so they had enough money to... This is going to break your heart, so just brace yourself. They had enough money to get into Disneyland. Then they were out of money. They only had enough to share a hamburger and fries and a milkshake. And so there, there they are in Disneyland with a small child sharing this meal together 
and watching everyone else get to ride the rides. But guess what? They got in. They got in. Now, this is not a perfect illustration. I think it's close to perfect. It's not perfect because we can argue at one level that my cousin in particular experienced some sort of loss that day. He couldn't ride the Matterhorn, right? He couldn't ride the spinning cups. He couldn't go on It's a Small World. Why would he ever want to anyway? (laughs) But he did get in. And so we strive for rewards, but we recognize there will be degrees of rewards in heaven. And so I would ask this morning, how does the prospect of the heavenly hope and the joy affect that you affect the way that you live the Christian life? Do you live the Christian life with with zest? Do you live the Christian life with zeal, knowing that one day you will receive that crown? Knowing that one day you will receive rewards which are based on your faithful Christian living? Think on a continuum. Is your hope more in, in earthly things? Or is your hope more in what is in store in your home in heaven. First John chapter 3 verse 3 says that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so is purity important to you? Is living a holy life important to you? And finally, do you find yourself living a life filled with joy? I was greeted at the door this morning by one of my friends This person was filled with joy, ready to learn, ready to grow, ready to hear the word of God, excited to be with the people of God. Does that describe your life? Are you the kind of person that that gets up in the morning and and not only goes to church filled with joy, but you, you start each day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You are excited to live the Christian life. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do to the glory of God. Whether we work, whether we play, whatever we do, our relationship with our family members, our relationships with our friends, our time in ministry. By the way, does ministry sometimes get tiring? Does ministry sometimes get old? Sometimes, perhaps. But when it does, we we have to do a reset, do we not? And we remember that our priorities are not for ourselves, but our ultimate priorities are for the glory of God. Why? We're looking forward to the future. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress that that Christian, that main character, he he is looking forward to his time in the celestial city. And so from the point of conversion all the way to the celestial city he labors and he toils and he battles unbelief he spends that time in the doubter's castle and he ends up realizing that all along he had the key right there in his satchel and all he had to do was open the door with that key we need to believe the promises of god we need to remember that our heavenly home is waiting just on the other side for us is anyone excited to go to heaven the, the, the more I study about heaven, the more I learn about heaven. And by the way, it never ends. It never ends. I can never come to the, the end of the fountain, right? Jonathan Edwards says there is no deficiency in a fountain that it overflows. You say, what does that mean? That means fountains overflow. 
By definition, fountains overflow. And the same is true with our knowledge of heaven. We continue to grow and go deeper and deeper and deeper. May we be captured this morning by the stunning reality of heaven. And we'll pick this discussion up next week in our study together. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that there is immeasurable joy in heaven as it awaits each of your people. We thank you, Father, that you will complete the good work that you started, where the redemptive plan for the ages will will come to a close one day, when all of your people, all of God's elect, will be glorified, will receive new bodies and spend all eternity growing and Holiness growing and happiness growing and love for one another and our love for you. As we await that day, God, I pray that we would zealously live the Christian life. I pray that that joy would be a primary characteristic in each of our lives. Lord, some days we wake up and we don't feel good. Some days we start our days and and we don't look forward to what lies ahead. But I pray that today would mark a change in our lives. That we would have a zeal, that we would have a zest, that we would have a joy for living the Christian life. May there be a, a theological paradigm shift that takes place right now, all because of grace. So, Lord, I pray that you would you would realign our priorities. You'd readjust our hearts God, I pray that you would do this mighty work of grace, that you would prepare us for our heavenly home. Thank you for the joy and the hope that we have in Christ because he indeed is risen from the grave. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.